Yeah, that was bad. That was literally a million dollar game for us that we lost because, you know, I don't remember the exact amount we paid for the slot, but it was low seven figures. And uh, so that was super frustrating and disappointing. And then, yeah, we definitely had to have kind of a, a, a come to Jesus discussion um, as, as uh, investors about what we wanted to do. My name is Mark Flood, a.k.a. Cashflow. For the last four years, I've been all in on gaming and esports. I currently operate Disrupt Gaming, an esports team. In season two of the Disrupt Gaming podcast, I'll be talking with some of the most successful people in the business about what they've learned and how they got started. I hope you enjoy. All right, so today we are in Austin, Texas at the Capital Factory Podcast Center. I'm speaking with Justin Siegel. He's a co-owner of one of the world's largest esports organizations. He built his previous company, Moco Space, to over 50 employees, is one of the most popular apps in the App Store. Uh, He's a three-time Ironman. He's a contributing member to Techstars, Boston Seed, and Capital Factory. Justin. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So, we're here to talk about esports and gaming, but before we get into that, in that intro, I think I probably left some stuff out. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background prior to the the gaming side of things? Yeah, well, prior to all of my entrepreneurial pursuits, I was a middle school French teacher for many years. Yeah, so I taught middle school French in uh, North Carolina for a few years before I sort of stumbled my way into entrepreneurship and gaming. And so back in 2001, uh, my best childhood friend and I had this idea to that um, that that people might do that people might play more than Snake on their flip phones, and so we started building games for uh, the early mobile phones as well as Palm Pilots and other PDA devices. Yeah, we started out by building some pretty basic games, and the goal because that's all the devices could handle, and the goal was really for us to just carve out a little business for ourselves that. Uh, could support us and uh, allow us to step away from our day jobs and and work for ourselves while making a couple of bucks. <clears throat> what ended up happening, obviously, is that uh, gaming really took off over the following uh, years, and uh, we kind of hung in there and continued to build bigger and better games. We partnered with some brands uh, like the Crocodile Hunter, Merriam-Webster, Word, uh, Merriam-Webster, the Dictionary Company, where we built a bunch of word games, and little by little, our business grew. Uh, and then in 2004, we ended up selling that business to uh, a subsidiary of SK Telecom, which is a big conglomerate out of South Korea, and built games for them. And sorry, you said what year was that? So what years were you a French teacher? And then when did the game company start? Yeah, good question. So I was a French teacher from 97 to about 2000. Yeah, so going way back. And the game company started around 2001, and we sold it in 2004. Wow. Okay. And I couldn't help but notice SK's got. Did they still have a team, right? They're team one. Yeah. Or... I mean, they. Yeah. I. I mean, we knew nothing about esports back then. It wasn't even a thought. But yeah, I mean, Faker is sort of the Michael Jordan of esports, and he played for the SK team back. That's in the right. Day. Cool. So that is. I had no idea that. That was your background. Yeah. When we had dinner, uh, whatever that was a few months ago, I don't think we got to that part. So that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, 
are you French by heritage? No, I'm not French by heritage. In high school, I uh, did a year uh, um, abroad. Uh, where I lived, in, I sort of graduated when I was a junior in high school, and then spent a year with a host family in France, and just fell in love with France and speaking French and all that good stuff. And then, um, and then, frankly, when I graduated college, uh, I'd majored in sociology, and so I was sort of qualified to do nothing in the job market. <laughs> and so I was trying to think what kind of marketable skills I had that somebody might hire me for. Right. And I was like, well, I am pretty good at speaking French, so I went back and got a uh, a uh, degree in uh, and. Uh, certification to teach and went down that path, which I loved. I love being a teacher, but it wasn't the plan all the time by any means. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think the uh, the comment you made about the unusable degree is, that's probably like 80% or 90% of college degrees yeah. say that are no. It's true. I mean, back then, I guess it was somewhat common, but there were plenty of people with kind of generic degrees that somehow managed to get jobs. But today, I think that's much tougher nut to crack. Yeah, the philosophy degree is a tough... Absolutely. <laughs> it's a yeah. tough degree to, to get a job with. Absolutely. And and college is way more expensive, so the debt is just so much higher than when it was. So, yeah. Cool. So, gaming. Yep. So, you, you've, you had a business career in mobile gaming mm-hmm. uh, very early, starting in, in 1999 or 2000. So... Talk to me about how that developed for you into what we call esports today and more competitive games and more sophisticated games, specifically on the PC. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was a pretty organic process in the sense that, I mean, like, like I think a lot of great entrepreneurial endeavors, they really come from sort of solving a problem that is meaningful to you rather than sort of an abstract opportunity. And in my case, I've got a uh, teenager at home who is super into gaming and has no interest in sports. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm kind of into endurance sports and sports in general. And it's not something that he was interested in. So playing Dota and League of Legends and PUBG and stuff became our way of playing catch in the backyard. And so I got hooked. He got hooked. Um, But more importantly, I started to observe that outside of our own gaming together, that that was just that there was a lot more to it than when I grew up and we would just play video games all day on the Commodore 64, the Atari, that there was this whole, at night, he would stay up watching videos, watching Twitch, and the next morning, he would always tell me on the way to school all of these cool tricks that he learned. And I'm like, after hearing that for weeks and weeks and weeks and probably months, I'm like, whoa, there is this whole universe of content and content consumption that's happening outside of the games themselves. And it just, after a while, the entrepreneur in me said, well, wait a minute, there's gotta be an emerging opportunity here because uh, my son and all of his friends are spending an ungodly amount of time, not just playing games, which was historically something I grew up knowing about and doing, to actually spending more time watching other people play games, which I thought was fascinating. And so I started to think about the space and where where I might want to kind of try and play as an entrepreneur and came to the conclusion that, you know, owning a team sounded like a heck of a lot of fun and probably just made the most sense from a business standpoint about where I wanted to play. And at that point, I started to poke around, do uh, sort of talk to some people in the space to educate myself. And that's when it came to my attention that one of my uh, old good friends um, – 
uh, from Boston who I'd been doing business with for, you know, probably close to 10 years uh, on mobile side of stuff for advertising was also on a similar boat in that, um, uh, and I'm talking about Andy Miller now, who's our CEO and the, and, and, and the main uh, uh, co-founder, if you will, of, of Energy. Um, he also had a teenage son, also sort of had the same observation. And Andy was also co-owner of the Sacramento Kings and a uh, minor league baseball team. So he already had a familiarity with owning teams. And he said, yeah, I'm putting together a group of people. Uh, I think it's right. He's None of these guys are gamers, so it's great that you actually play games and can inform us a little bit, uh, which is kind of scary because it's sort of like buying an NFL team and one of your friends played a little bit of football in high school and he's the... He's the resident expert, you know, um, and we can get to, you know, that, that you know, we, we definitely paid the price learning uh, with a steep learning curve. But I've in any got, case, I've got that in my notes. Yeah. So in any case, he put, you know, put together a group of investors and ended up buying a uh, League of Legends uh, uh, franchise. Cool. I've got the notes to talk about the the LOL franchise. Yeah. That was Team Coast, by the way. It was not Phoenix One. Okay. I don't know why I thought Phoenix One, but yeah. but there were another one that got acquired by someone else. But so so Team Coast was that team. Something you mentioned that I think is really important, especially I deal with a ton of parents, and mm-hmm. they ask me questions all the time about yeah. gaming, where it's going. You mentioned something that I think is one of the one of the things that makes me most excited for for my kids, uh, but also. Uh, I think is something that a lot of parents aren't capitalizing on as an opportunity, and that is the throwing the football in the backyard yeah. analogy. That that relationship and being able to share that with your your you said it's son, right? Yeah. Yes, son. That's so important yeah. in 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 the space. I, I think it's an opportunity for parents that is there, yeah. and it's such a powerful thing. And it's just it's like just as effective as any other bonding. Like it shouldn't be looked down on as this like weird thing that you can't like share yeah. together. I think that's so cool that you guys I agree. I mean you're not gonna find somebody that's a bigger proponent well before esports of gaming and the value of gaming. So a lot of parents um obviously have very mixed emotions about gaming, whether it's too much screen time or too much violence. I am like the evangelist for <clears throat> really all the pros of gaming. Um all the upside of gaming, and I am a firm believer that gaming has so much more to offer um, than any of the drawbacks. And whether it's um, bonding time, whether it's giving the 99% of kids that are not going to be the quarterback of the football team an opportunity to shine, to develop hand-eye coordination, to develop problem-solving skills, to co-play with their friends, you know, a lot of these parents that are against gaming, you know, are are sort of okay with television time. And I'm like, well, TV watching is totally passive. This is totally active. But I could go on and on and on. Like my son had a weak left eye that would drift sometimes. And after months of playing on the Wii, which requires, you know, a lot of hand-eye coordination and moving around on a big screen, it strengthened his eye. And now, now medicine is using gaming to get kids to do stuff, whether it's strength in their eyes, whether it's kids who have cystic fibrosis that don't want to do their breathing exercises. There are games now where they, they, they maneuver and manipulate characters by breathing into a tube. So there are so, so many things. In fact, there is a great article maybe two or three weeks ago in The Atlantic called The Games Boys Play. And, it was a, and the writer was talking about how when he was a kid, he was... Uh, gay and in the closet, hadn't told anybody. 
and played Call of Duty with his dad every night and came out to his dad while they were playing Call of Duty. And that that gave him the the connection, the bonding time, and the place where the safe place where he felt he could do that. Was it right after like a massive score streak? Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. I have no idea at what point in the game. And he talked about the fact that he has built a whole community in Call of Duty and actually found his boyfriend playing video games through that community. Wow. So, so. I think people that know gaming like yourself or, or, or myself or the kids recognize that these things, even something like Fortnite, Fortnite is such a, is, is, uh, while it's, while, while it can de- definitely be addicting, that is so much better a community for the kids to be a part of, I think, as a social community than Instagram that, yeah, I just, I couldn't be a bigger evangelist for games and, and, and the value that they have for kids and, and adults. Absolutely. So last question on, on, on that relationship, what would you say to parents to look for in their own kids for them to decide whether, whether their, their child is progressing in a game and utilizing all the skills that, you know, teamwork and, and strategy and all of these things versus what, what could be, I guess, perceived as the negative side. How would you tell a parent to like, what what should they look for to see whether it's a healthy thing or, or perhaps not? Yeah. Well, I think like all parenting and I'm not, you know, I don't think anybody's the perfect parent, but I think uh, with everything, you have to sort of be involved and paying attention. And I think all of the signs that you would expect of just like a healthy activity versus unhealthy um, are, are sort of there, right? Like, are they talking to other people when they play? Uh, how are they talking to other people, right? Because there definitely is a lot of, there is smack talk, like there is in all sports, um, but there are points when it can get really toxic. And again, that can be part of the smack talk, just like a pickup game in basketball or what happens in football also. But there may be times where you're like, hey, you know, even you and I were joking, even as adults, sometimes we turn off the chat in the games because either we're losing it or other players around us are just uh, infecting us with their with their toxicity. Um, the other the other part of it is that, like anything, I mean, I think everything's healthy in moderation. And so there is a point where I think anything can become addicting uh, if you do too much of it right. and you don't have guidelines around it. So at some point, you've got to have some guidelines there. And even within my own gaming and certainly kids' gaming's, there's a point where you can tell that it switches over from being fun to being, you know, where they, if it's destroying their mood because they're not winning and they're getting off the game or they're, you know, throwing their headset down and it's becoming a little too much. Well, frankly, I mean, I'm a big kid. I, I sort of self-regulate. I recognize, okay, this is a time to step away, whether it's a kid or adult. Like, okay, this game is no longer making me happy today. Yeah. It's no longer bringing me joy. I need to switch it up because otherwise, like anything, you can go down this dark hole where sometimes you get on a losing streak and I've done it. My kid's done it. You've done it. And instead of just taking a break, you're like, no, no, screw this. I'm playing until <laughs> I win a game. And then you're up at four in the morning and you're still grinding away. And some days just not your day. And, and all you would have been better gone. served. Right. You would have been better <laughs> served to just walk away after that first loss. Totally. So, so yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it really is. It's it's really common sense, I think, for on, on a parent's perspective in evaluating that, and they all know their kids better than anyone else does. Uh, so I think that that insight is super valuable. I will add one one final thing, which uh, is a huge thing and a huge plus for gaming, which is that lots of girls do it, and the girls can compete on the same level as boys. So there isn't a football team that girls can't participate in except as a cheerleader. That's right. Um, 
or whatnot. The girls are gaming and not quite in the numbers that boys are, but not but but much higher than most people think, especially depending on the game. And I think it is uh, that is awesome. And I think the fact that a lot of the characters are avatars for not you know that you can play in these games are both male and female, and the boys have no problem playing female characters all the time. That right. is not a derogatory thing. Um, so I think that creates a whole different like relationship to gender and sexuality and gaming that is frankly much more progressive and open than than what you find on the football field, for example. That that really doesn't get talked about enough. No, it doesn't. Now, now yeah. that you say especially like when you when you talked about the characters in game, like I've I of course noticed that myself and have seen that in that somewhat discussed on the periphery, but but I think that actually needs to be something that's probably evangelized more. So I'm glad you said yeah. that. Okay, so switching gears into the business side of things. So you'd said that uh, you were the resident expert. You'd, yeah. you'd played a couple hours of League of Legends, yeah. and now you're now you're set to run a, a massive esports organization. Right. You guys get together. You get you get the group together. By the way, I also have notes. Y'all's board of advisors and investors is an extremely interesting group of people. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But so you get this group together. And you're like, okay, we're going to start. And that start is yeah. in League of Legends. Yeah. And it starts with you guys yeah. acquiring uh, what was called Team Coast. Yeah. At this time, there was no franchising. Right. So this was a somewhat, it still is to some degree with the Wild West, but even more so back yeah. then. So talk to me a little bit about that, I guess, how you chose that team specifically, and then kind of the next, how that played out over the the timeline of how, how long was that? Like a year total? Yeah, or? I think it was about a year. In terms of specifically, I don't know all the details because a lot of this happened on the West Coast and I'm mostly based here in Austin. We we were smart enough to sort of, <laughs> that's a whole other story, partner up with, with some people that did know and did come from the esports space that were sort of leading us in this direction. So they sort of identified the opportunity for us to get involved with that. So it wasn't really anything that Andy and I or, or anybody else in the original group of investors had the insight or the know-how. It was that we had partnered with someone that was from the space who said, hey, here's an opportunity. This is a good slot. And frankly, this is a good game because this is the sort of top esport game. It happened to be the game that I had been playing a lot, but that was just, yeah, that, that was driven by, by one, of the, one of the people we had partnered with early on. Um, but, you know, Le- League of Legends is a fantastic game, but an incredibly complex game. And so, yeah, if it had been Mario Karts or something like that, maybe we would have stood a chance. But, you know, um, Riot Games was probably the furthest down the road uh, or, or uh, uh, um, and le- uh, League for being what we thought would have like the structure for a pro uh, mm-hmm. sports league um, and one like a structure that made sense to us. Got it. So you guys, you guys acquire the team. Mm-hmm. For anyone that's listening to this, that may sound weird. Uh, that acquisition is quite literally. It's similar to a player transfer in in European soccer or something like that. You you quite yeah. literally paid someone a fee, and now you have the rights to this team, right? And, and you sign them to contracts, and you pay right. them. But that's it. That's a, it's as simple as that. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Cool. So you guys acquire the team. Uh, do you do they? 
was at that time was NRG the brand? Had you guys started the brand and you acquired the team and they became NRG LOL or I think we acquired I, I am not a hundred percent on the timeline, but I'm pretty sure that we acquired the team and then came up with the brand and the branding and the logo and all that. Certainly the branding and the logo and all that stuff that came after. Whether or not we had the name NRG, I don't remember if that if that was the case. Cool. So you acquire the team. And from the date of acquisition, or, yeah. or let's call it from the first game they played to when effectively the team disbanded or was <laughs> yeah. dropped, that was approximately a year or a season? Yeah, it was It was a little bit more than a season, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So We se- didn't disband. We got we got relegated. <laughs> the, the, the season starts. Yeah. Starts off bad. Did you guys win the first couple games? Lose a couple? Of yeah, first? we. It, the, so the first half of the split, which is you know the season sort of divided into splits and league. The sur- first half of the split went on the surface, you know, really well. We were winning games. We were sort of in the playoffs. Uh, we felt like we had a talented team. You know, behind the scenes, it was like total chaos uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. We were just learning how to get control of this sort of crazy ship that we had bought. And so behind the scenes, there was not a lot of infrastructure and um, there was not a lot of expertise in-house. Um, we had a bunch of... so so. Today, this is still somewhat true, um, but then it was certainly true, which was most of the top players came out of Korea. So we had uh, a number of players, and you were limited. The teams were limited by how many Koreans you could have on each team, uh, to keep it fair. But we had all these players living in a house in L.A. Um, so you did, you did bring them all together yes. and get them in a team house. Yes, okay. we had a team house. Half the players didn't speak a word of English. So we had a graduate student who was a gamer who was also Korean-American that was the translator for these guys and basically had to be around 24-7 to get anything done. In-game comms were in English, but... Yeah, but they didn't. nobody understood. Like, we had these players like Impact, who's now still one of the top, top laners. We had a guy named GBM, who's a star um, from Korea. These guys, yeah, they were communicating with, like, noises because they really couldn't communicate with each other. The Korean guys weren't speaking Korean on comms in the game because they wanted the English-speaking guys who, in this case, like our jungler Santorin is from Europe, so he spoke fluent English, but but um, uh, yeah, it was a communication nightmare in the games, but also outside of the games. And so the day-to-day living was kind of crazy, yeah. Social media was really hard, um, and as you know, super important in the space. Most of these guys, again, didn't speak English. They didn't really know anything about Twitter or Instagram. You know, they knew things about Lion and Kakao Talk and some of the Korean social media, but nothing about the U.S.-centric stuff. And their stuff wasn't in English anyways, so uh, it was super hard to build off of that. We had at the time— is it, is it fair to like categorize that as the marketability was low because of all of that? Yeah, I mean, there. so we helped them along with this, and these guys were recognized by Western gamers as really good players and appreciated, so they would get followers on social media. And they would post sometimes. Photos obviously spoke a lot more than words because the words, you know, were, were just not there. Yeah. 
and then we had a social media manager that was it was kind of a mess like she was uh, she also spoke uh, Korean but she lived in the house um, she was like a part-time cook uh, dating some of the guys or wanting to date some of the guys or who knows no, what was going on that's the whole thing was situation. like yeah exactly the whole the whole <laughs> thing was a mess and so it was like when I would go visit the game house I mean it was sort of like being in one of these episodes of real world except that nobody speaks the language that you understand and uh, yeah so it, it, it was chaos but Back to your original question, the first half of the season was going well. Like we had a strong team. Uh, I think we finished like third or fourth in the split. Uh, we thought, well, we're going to continue to get better and make improvements. And uh, you know, the analysts in the space thought so as well. There was eight teams at that time, correct, or was it ten? Oh gosh, yeah, that's just for context for where like, I don't fourth remember. was like middle of the pack, right? Yeah, like, we were best, like mid- we were like, like on the safe, top half. Right? Yeah, we were safe. We were in the top half. I don't remember if it was eight or ten, but we were in the top half. And uh, anyhow, so we left the first split feeling good about things. Second split quickly devolved into a nightmare. Like, I think we might have won the first game. The second game was kind of like, okay, and then, like, total collapse and chaos. And what's really frustrating as a sports fan that I am or that Andy is like, but playing a game that is something, even though I played it, like, I mean, what these guys are doing is totally, you know, again, it's like the high school kid that played high school football. 300 actions per minute or something like that's crazy. I had no real insight or advice to offer. So everything, we got into the cycle where every change that we made seemed wrong. And we were trusting our coach, um, which is the right thing to do because that's what you hire the coach. But at some point, when do you know when the coach is the wrong coach? And he didn't seem like the most motivated individual. Um, there's also like a lot of crazy politics in esports. There's a lot of people who have been in esports for a long time, grinding away, building up esports that have made really effectively no money for many many years and this was just the beginning and we were some of the first guys that showed up where it's like oh these guys have some money so we can actually start kind of charging these guys and so there was a lot of people looking to dip their hand into people's pockets we were of course the the dumbest money at the table uh, along with you know some other teams that had similar type of investors and so it was just it was it was like total chaos we did not know how to make the team better we didn't know what was wrong with the team um and wherever we turned there were people that were happy to get paid by us to give us advice or even to make um trades and player changes um uh, but we really had no idea what we were doing. So on an entrepreneurial level, I feel like if that's not the case early in a venture, then like you're not doing it right. Because 100%. if you had come in, it was like all hunky-dory and super yeah. easy and safe. Like I don't think there's money to be made in those types of scenarios. So I, I, like, I empathize with that feeling because I think that's how it has to be. Yeah. No, you nailed it 100%. I mean, Andy and I were both um, super early uh, in the mobile space. It seems weird to even say that now, but back in 2001, 2002, whatever, 2004 even, um, mobile phones as a platform, this was pre-iPhone, pre-Android. It looked like uh, to guys like Andy and I, like a no-brainer that this was going to be a massive opportunity, but highly unstructured at the time. We, of course, had no idea that iPhone and Android were coming. And so, yeah, to your point, we were very, I mean, we were comfortable and uncomfortable. On the day-to-day basis, it was like, whoa, this is chaos. We got to wrap our heads around this. But from a bigger picture, we weren't as investors, like, surprised. We knew stepping in that 
this is what it would be. And to your point, if anything, it just solidified our convictions that, yeah, we are exactly where we should be um, in terms of as investors and entrepreneurs, this is the space that we definitely want to be in. Getting comfortable in the chaos. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, like liking yes. the hecticness. Because, you know, when you look at startups, I mean, a lot of time you talk about things like product market fit and business model, all that. All that. But product market fit is probably the most elusive thing for most entrepreneurs. And in esports, I mean, Andy and I would go to these events product market fit was there in spades, right? You have, I mean, they're selling out arenas even back then for things like Dota with $20 million prize purses. You've got games like League of Legends even back then with, um, you know, uh, uh, tens of millions of players playing a day with the average kid playing three hours a day. So there was no question that the product market fit was there. This was a worldwide phenomenon that some people viewed as a niche, but it was a really big niche. And we knew, like, you go to these events, the fans are crazy for this stuff. Right. So for us, it was just sort of a question of, uh, and to some degree still is, a question of business model and what's the right structure to monetize this. But that people are into video games and esports, that's that's a, a given. I mean, yeah. Yep. Okay. So team performance starts to go poorly. Uh, if I'm synthesizing that correctly, it sounds like the internal issues inside the team itself ended up showing up on game day. And you could probably say that those are related very closely together. Yeah. Uh, the record goes down. At some point, you are mathematically relegated. Yeah. Tell me about like when that day when, when it was certain that you were relegated, the feeling, what you thought you were going to do next. It Was there a chance that this was it, and now you know that that you're out. Oh, like, talk to me about that that moment. In yeah, time. Oh, I remember it really well because we sort of all along knew that relegation was possibility in the field. But basically, what happens is you enter the playoffs for the end of the season. The team that finishes in last place in the playoffs, which of of course we thought could never be us because we were one of the better teams. Um, uh, then has to enter sort of another playoff structure with challenger teams. The challenger teams are sort of like AAA baseball teams or amateur teams um, that people have invested in, you know, to you know potentially make money off of. But the big opportunity of being a challenger team owner is that your your dream is to get to play your way into a franchise slot. And so what happens is the worst pro team goes into this other bracket and plays a bracket of uh, uh, with a bunch of challenger teams. And one pro team. Um, if the pro team wins at any point, they're safe. <laughs> well, we lost, and then we were like, that's okay, we just need to win the next game. There's no way we're going to lose the next game. We lost again, and you know where this goes. And so we kept losing. The, the We were in the final game uh, all the way down to the bottom of the challenger bracket, and we still, it's hard to get relegated. We still, if we had won the final game, we would not be relegated. And so we thought, at this point, our, our confidence was shaken, but we were still pretty confident that we're not going to lose to another team of uh, semi-pro players. And I was at my house in my living room on the big screen with a couple of my friends that were also hardcore league players that actually understood the game way better than me. And they're like, oh, don't worry, you guys got this. <laughs> well, we lost. And, uh, you I'm, know, that I'm was like a seven-figure loss. just imagining this, like, oh, my God. Yeah, so we lost, and my friends just looked at me. They did not know what to say. They are just like, wow, that's, that's bad. And so, yeah, that was bad. That was literally a million-dollar game for us that we lost because, you know, I don't remember the exact amount we paid for the slot, but it was low seven figures. And uh, so that was super frustrating. 
and disappointing. And then, yeah, we definitely had to have kind of a, a, a come to Jesus discussion um, as as uh, investors about what we wanted to do. But ultimately, that wasn't as hard. I mean, we were sort of feeling down, but we but not out in the sense that Andy and I, if anything, our time in the space had done nothing but further convince us that this industry is booming. And so we were sort of like, hey, man, we're in for a penny, we're in for a pound, or in this case, 15 pounds, because we ended up turning around saying, well, screw it, we're going to, you know, we don't, we don't want to invest in a game and a team further where you can lose your franchise. That does not seem like a great spot for us. Scary. Exactly. So, um, and to Riot's credit, they recognized that, and we were the last team where relegation was possible and last team to re- get relegated. Um, so you but guys we were moved the, on. the straw that broke yeah, the camel's right. back yeah. in that regard. Somebody had to do it. So everybody owes us a lot, I guess. But uh, we turned around and said, well, hey, Overwatch is coming, this new game Overwatch, uh, and, and Activision wants to do a, a real structured league. Riot had a league-like structure, but it wasn't um, it wasn't totally solidified, and there definitely weren't, like, it wasn't a franchise model. Activision was like, no, we want to basically create the, the a global version of the NFL. We want to have teams, franchises from around the world um, playing in a structured, you know, a structured uh, league. And so we were like, great, let's do that. You know, the only wrinkle is, of course, that those franchises went for 15 million bucks. And even if you had 15 million dollars like like the NFL, you still had to be vetted as a group of owners that they wanted. And so we wanted so we sort of quickly made the decision that we want to continue to double down on this investment. And that meant. Um, you know, a lot of the the the, the franchisees for Overwatch uh, have deep, deep pockets already. They own professional sports leagues and whatnot. That wasn't so much the case with us. And so we had to go convince our investors and more that like, yeah, we did such a great job with your first investment in league uh, that you should give us 15 million bucks um, to blow on this brand new sport. Yeah, 20 times as much. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, and this time we promise we know what we're doing. We'll do better. And uh, and at the same time, convince Activision that we were a worthwhile group of owners. Um, and so, uh, obviously, sitting here today, we managed to do both. But yeah, that was also, to your point earlier, I mean, that that's just part of being in the madness of that, of startup kind of world, especially in an industry that is as kind of fluid and dynamic as, a, as the startup itself. Yep. So... In regards to that initial capital investment, and this this question is more geared towards the listeners who are considering getting into esports themselves, yeah. it, it sounds like even though that was a horrible situation to be in, you kind of knew in the back of your head that that wasn't going to, in a worst case scenario, you weren't going to be out of the game. Uh, to up and coming or aspiring esports entrepreneurs, especially on the organization side, would you agree that if, let's say that you had raised that capital and you knew that that let's call it, it was $1.5 or $2 million, right. and that was all you had, and there was no other opportunity. Would you suggest to someone else in that same position that you don't want to be pinning your business hopes on competitive success? Um, huh, that's a good question. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's, it's a big roll of the dice, right? Um, at the time, 
uh, there weren't really any other options, right? So you can monetize your teams, especially today through streaming dollars and some sponsorships and stuff like that. Back then, you definitely could not. So there wasn't really, I mean, you know, we talked a lot about league. Um, and Overwatch, we, we have other teams like Rocket League. They're not in structured as structured a league format. Nine. Yeah. NRG has nine Correct. teams under the NRG brand that is not the COD franchise or Overwatch. Uh, Overwatch. Yeah, that's right. And so there's lots of different sort of ways that those deals are structured and those and those relationships and, and those teams are monetized. Um, so, you know, I, that's, a, that's a tough question. I would say... Um, Oh, I, I think, though, yes. I think, ultimately, I would view this more as like building a media company and a brand than hanging everything on kind of having a successful competitive team. Yeah, I, I think that would – I would err more towards having a business plan that goes far beyond and is broader than winning or winning tournaments and prizes. Um, Win- winning's tough. Winning is super tough. It's very unpredictable and unforgiving in, in, in many ways. I mean um, – you know, uh, probably listeners, and certainly you know. I mean, if you're into gaming, you know, like um, they change the game all the time, right? Even in the middle of the season or at the end of the season, they'll change the meta, and so it is. It can be very challenging and frustrating to spend a lot of money on players and designing a team around one meta, only to find out that they switch metas, right? It would be like the NBA, like you pay an arm and a leg to get Stephon Curry, and then they announce two days before the playoffs no, they're getting rid of line. the three-point line. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, I just paid half of our franchise payroll to get an amazing three-point shooter. And now so you're so what you're talking about right there, that I think that is one of the most critical differences for people that are trying to understand esports from right. the outside and comparing it to regular sports. The change in, not the necessarily the rules, although, although, the, although the rules do change, but your analogy that you just used or metaphor inside the games you can have something that literally changes everything about the way the game is played instantly and the developers have full control to do that whenever they want they're not beholden to anybody to they can put in a new uh hero legend whatever that has these crazy abilities uh and i'm sure there's some type of um silo period where where new heroes aren't allowed immediately at high level competitive they allowed right. to get balanced out but that is one of the critical differences between traditional sports and esports uh, especially when it comes to the team dynamic and how you are constantly uh, you have to stay in front of the meta essentially right right absolutely and the other which which touches on uh, on a bigger difference which is that in theory the NBA and the NFL um, you know they're owned by the owners they're making decisions you know in theory in the best interest of the owners that's sort of generally the gist of it uh, with esports what you have is that you know Activision and Riot and all of these companies they make far more money selling their game directly to consumers and many of the consumers just like football or baseball or basketball well actually not just like it many of the but similar many of the consumers kids that play video games are not esports fans or not rabid esports fans or not watching the game so for example you know you'll have 
up to 8 million concurrent users a day playing League of Legends. That means at any one time at night, there might be 8 million people playing. But a pro League of Legends game, you know, might have half a million, if it's a real, you know, a really big kind of regular season game, maybe a million or so viewers. So the vast majority of people playing League of Legends are not watching the games live. And so the publishers have to make business decisions that are um, in the best interest of the business, which is catering to the individual consumer players. And so they'll make these meta changes or they'll change champs around based on what they see happening for the gamers, knowing that only a small subset uh, are, are super motivated by what's happening in the pro league. I see that in in my circle of what is a lot of high-level competitive players, and they constantly complain about these changes, and they're like, oh, this is made for you know complete newbies to the game, whatever. Right. And I always, I understand their gripe. However, sometimes it feels like they may not understand that, <laughs> to your point, these, these developers are beholden to their shareholders to drive profits and sell sell whatever it is they sell their games the in-game skins whatever and so the esports and competitive side of all of this seems like it kind of falls under the developers marketing budget absolutely and if yeah. if the esports scene isn't underlying, uh, dr- uh, driving some underlying benefit to the overall business, they wouldn't even do it, probably. Right. Yeah. I mean, the analogy I, I sort of use loosely is like Formula One, right? So Formula One, I mean, is a great sport. I'm a fan of it. Um, but ultimately, and, and, you know, in theory, and these cars, like a Formula One team costs, you know, $500 million a year to run, right? You're building these super cutting edge cars. You're flying this whole group of, of uh, a driver and mechanics and engineers all over the world for these races. Historically, that's been a massive loss leader for all the car companies. Huge. I read an article that Red Bull operated their team at a neg like minus 250 million dollars right a year yeah it, and it is basically marketing slash r&d budget right r&d budget in that some of the cutting edge tech that they developed for formula one cars eventually makes it into everyday cars but the marketing budget which is hey for the ferrari brand Ferrari is so much cooler because they have an amazing Formula One team and a racing heritage in racing. Same with Aston Martin, and 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 that's why you see those brands, right? I mean, Ford doesn't have a Formula One team because most people are not buying Fords um, because they're considered race cars. Whereas Ferrari, Aston Martin, Mercedes, uh, Mercedes, Porsche actually is not in Formula One, but everyone, you know, but they sort of dabble in racing, and then sort of it's unclear. Sometimes they're in, sometimes they're out. But yeah. These are hugely expensive marketing budgets for a sport that ultimately, like Ferrari, doesn't have to be in Formula One. They, most of their cars are, you know, that they sell have nothing to do with Formula right. One. That analogy is amazing. I need to pay you a licensing fee to use that in the future because <laughs> that is how I'm, I'm going to explain it Great. going forward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was actually really good. I've never heard someone compare those two uh, in that aspect. Also, side note. Team Vitality is on the Renault F1 card. Did you know oh, that? I did not know that. If you watch F1, the Renault team has the Team Vitality wow. logo. The you know, ownership groups are, are mixed or whatever. Wow. Uh, and they're French, I think. Yeah, Vitality's yeah, French, yeah, I think. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, Maybe so they share an owner or an investor. Or yeah, like side, uh, side tidbit there. Yeah. Okay, so 
we've got the history of LOL. The the part about the, the team dynamics is really interesting. I think that is probably going into too much into the weeds for the scope of this. However, that's very interesting what you've learned and how you apply that today to managing morale. By the way, the San Francisco Shock just won the Overwatch League championship. Yes. So they've clearly learned something because they just reached the pinnacle in one of the largest franchise esports. So that is amazing. They've very clearly learned some lessons from their LOL experience. However, I want to talk about NRG, the brand, as well as as the, the San Francisco Shock and the new Call of Duty franchise. So the first thing, my first question for you is, Actually, the first thing I'm going to do is give you guys a compliment. Yeah. I'm on social media constantly. It's yeah. a part of what we, we have to do. You guys are crushing it right yeah. now. I was telling our internal team that NRG might be the hottest esports brand there is right now. And of course, the uh, the Overwatch Championship helps that a lot. But even before that, I love y'all social media. You guys grip it and rip it. Unapologetic yeah. is the thing that you guys just came out with the branding. Y'all did the video. Uh, something that that I'm personally as an entrepreneur okay with is is hate and people throwing shade and all of that stuff. Yeah. And people look at that stuff and they they think that it's bad. Specifically related to y'all's rebrand, I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was bold. I thought y'all went out, you gripped it and ripped it. There was negative feedback, but that's one percent right. vocal minority that's right. like super toxic and negative and doesn't reflect everybody. And so I constantly tell our internal team, yeah. look at NRG. You see what they're yeah. doing? They don't capitalize their tweets. Right. <laughs> and I'm, that may be something that's on your radar that has been discussed or something, right? Right. But like little things like that, like you guys go. So uh, NRG, I highly recommend you guys give them a follow. It's at uh, NRGG on Twitter. Yep. If you just- SF, sh- SF Shock on Twitter. SF Shock. Yeah. Uh, and then COD underscore Chicago, Chicago underscore COD. Yeah. But fantastic social media, in my opinion- maybe the best in the business. And from a metrics perspective, I'm pretty sure you guys were like number one for most talked about esports organization yeah. for some month or period yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah, we something. just got that. We we're pretty excited. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. because there's some big ones out there. I mean, 100 Absolutely. It. So yeah. getting NRG up there, you guys are crushing it. So thank you. The brand itself. Um, so you guys start NRG, your board of investors and mm-hmm. advisors. It it's may not even be an all-inclusive list, but I, I saw on there Shaquille O'Neal, yeah. Marshawn Lynch, yeah. Jennifer Lopez, yeah. uh, Andy Miller, yeah. co-owner of the Sacramento Kings. Yeah. How do all these pieces come together and, and what is it like what is the how are all these pieces coming together and how do you see these fitting together to drive all three brands forward? Yeah, yeah so it, it, it all kind of ties together with like what you're saying. And so we sort of recognize fairly early on, that like social is an area that, I mean, that's sort of my background, uh, having built a social social uh, network myself, but we sort of recognize pretty early on to your earlier question that being a media company was super important and building, and, and we didn't ever know what, which which game is going to be like one minute it's PUBG, the next minute it's Fortnite. Some it could be something else. I think these games will endure, but there will always be another popular game coming. So we recognized pretty early on that we were building a media company, and that part and parcel to that was building out a strong brand um, and following, so that we could take our fans with us across any of our franchises, hopefully. And so we focused on that early on. Um, we also recognized that. For esports to go from where it was when we first got into League of Legends to where it is today, 
they started to need needing to be recognized and treated like pro athletes. And so sort of no better way to do that than to get pro athletes involved with our organization. And Rick Fox, to his credit, talked a lot about that early on at, at Echo Fox. And it's sort of a uh, shame what's going what's kind of gone on with that franchise. It, but Rick also a was a big pro- proponent really early on. And, and hey, we've got to treat these guys like pro athletes and recognize that. And so, yeah. And, and, and so when you think about building a media company, <clears throat> building a brand and try and elevate video gaming to a professional level where they're respected as athletes while bringing in pro athletes and entertainers, you know, makes a whole lot of sense. But Shaq was really the first one to get involved. And I mean, you really couldn't ask for a better partner in terms of a bigger brand, a big kid. He loves gaming. He's sort of up for anything. And he clearly understands business. Correct. I mean, I, I've yeah. seen him doing stuff for all, like, I mean, that guy, yes. he's he'll make way more money from his business career than from his playing career by a yeah. l- l- big multiple. Absolutely. And so it was great to be able to bring him on as a, as a partner. And, and Andy and one of our other uh, investors and co-founders, Mark Mastroff, um, being co-owners of the Sacramento Kings, um, you know, had a lot of connections. But, you know, Andy did, uh, uh, you know, a, a huge amount of the work to, to make that happen and bring together those people. How important or what is the relationship between NRG, the brand, mm-hmm. and then the San Francisco Shock brand and the Call of Duty brand, is it necessary and critical for those three to be linked or do they do they exist separately? And, and not only do I mean from a perception and, and just general social perspective, but also from a business side and sponsorships, if yeah. is, are those siloed to where they're, they're, they're unique opportunities or, or are they all in fact tied together and you want to be playing them off of each other or, or do they kind of you, is it? Yeah. So, Separate. so, so from a business standpoint, they're all under the energy umbrella, right? There's one business that owns all of these uh, teams and brands. In the case of Call of Duty and in Overwatch, Activision wants teams to have their own distinct branding that stand on their own separate from the parent company. And uh, there's probably a bunch of reasons for that. And um, in some ways, it can be a little bit frustrating because, of course, we would like to have, you know, building this media company have more kind of uh, cross promotion. And there can be and there is sometimes confusion around people now I think they know, but early on did not realize that Energy and SF Shock were the same team and the same ownership. Correct. Um, I'd go so far as to say that if you're in the scene, you'd know that, but yeah. an outside observer would have no Correct. idea. Right. That that's totally true. But from their perspective, you know, I think it makes and even from 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 owners' perspectives, you know, at some point, you know, there are companies, for example, that might own you know the Yankees and the Rangers and whatever, but you want to be able to sell potentially. Uh, one of those teams to another set of owners down the road without necessarily having to um, sell everything or have that uh, create a whole other mess down the road. So the fact that these are their own brands means that, yeah, there is some ability to, to, to do stuff that you couldn't do if they were all tied to the parent company, right? So if it was all NRG and you had an NRG Overwatch team, well, what happens to that value of that franchise if, you know, um, you know, if the New York Yankees uh, uh, now have to be, you know, called something else, but right. still stay in New York? It's like becomes a weird thing. So, yeah. 
Totally. So I think I think most people, especially when they're talking about that, they're so optic gaming when it came to yeah. the Call of Duty thing, and we'll we'll talk about that also because yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. Uh, going back to how NRG is killing it, um, but I think. When, especially when you look out at a five or 10 year forecast, the negativity around losing some of these traditional brands yeah. um, will go away to the points that you just made about transferring a team, whatever. It kind of has to be separated in that regard. It is unfortunate that that you we are we might lose some of these yeah. historic brands. However, in 10 years, this is just gonna be like a dot on yeah. the history board. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting, but and that that has been hard and fair and fairness to a lot of the people who over the years have spent their lives building up esports. You know, when these leagues came about, um, there was a pretty clear decision made by the riots and the and the Activisions of the world that um, they wanted to take this to the next level. And the reality is, a lot of people that spent many many years in esports were not going to be able to come along for that ride, or and not in the ways that they wanted because they just didn't have the money or the financial backing, um, whatnot. And so I understand both sides of that. But yeah, it's it's super hard. And, you know, we were there at that moment where we know some of the people that sort of were like, hey, we helped make this happen. And yet they're not really going to capitalize on any of the, you know, financially on any right. of, of it. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, that happens in lots of areas with lots of things. And it's kind of... Uh, sad and frustrating, but um, so I get that sentiment, and it's still playing out, like you said, where there are kind of franchises. And but you know, when you look back on you know um, uh, the history of, of a lot of big sports, there's there's a lot of that, you know, for uh, sure. You know, so, it's it's yeah. just in in especially in my prism, it's yeah. super amplified. But right. in the grand scheme of things, I yeah. know that ten years down the line, this is just literally just a little blip. So. Again, for the listeners, Optic Gaming was uh, one of the most storied Call of Duty franchises. Their entire brand was built uh, in Call of Duty, and and I think it's fair to say they were the most popular yeah, Call of Duty sure. yeah. organization. Tons of championships, tons of media, uh, and really just uh, a pioneer in the esports industry in general. Um, NRG recently added their former CEO, uh, Hector Rodriguez, a.k.a. Hex, and he is now the co-CEO of Call of Duty Chicago, which is NRG's Call of Duty brand. So that is monumental. Yes. Hex himself, you could argue that there's a few people that are big that started Optic. So Hex, Nadeshot, Scum, uh, Crim6, yeah. probably a few else I'm forgetting, but those are some big ones. Yeah. Hex is now with NRG. Yeah. You guys also signed Scump. And any other uh, former optic guys? I don't know, but it's possible. As we talked about before, this it, it is so hard to keep track of, especially for <laughs> someone that didn't grow up in this stuff. That like the, the names are so crazy um, and ever changing. So it is possible, cool. so, and, and it's so fast moving. Even this deal, which we'll talk about, happened so quickly that yeah. Okay, so we'll just keep it for for hex and scump. Yeah. Uh, those two people are gigantic yeah. in the community. They will bring with them a huge portion yeah. of 
what was the green wall aka optic gaming to call of duty chicago which is amazing for you guys yeah so as much information as as is allowed to be shared about that uh, the optic gaming infinite esports was this whole thing is this whole deal no one was sure what was going to happen oh it's hex's optic i follow hex all, all these kind of crazy things that were happening I see this video on Twitter, which was amazing by the way. Yeah. I freaking love that video. Hex gets on. He says something that I don't even understand what he's talking about. Right. And then he puts on an puts NRG. On and NRG. I'm like, this is like, yeah. I don't even know what just happened, but this is amazing. Yeah. How did that come to fruition? Was it a long time in, in process? Was it a pretty quick decision? Yeah, it was super quick. I was not in the room at the time. In fact, uh, truth be told, I heard about it by seeing that Hex video and um yeah uh i'm I, I don't think i'm spilling any huge secrets here i mean it, it happened quickly like a few weeks prior to that happening we were talking about call of duty and um and i, I you know i like call of duty a big fan of the game um and and, and and many times even prior to that, but but just in terms of giving a sense of how quickly it happened, a few weeks ago I kind of brought that up and I was like, you know, do we want to take a look at this? And the franchises are twenty five million bucks, so they are expensive, and that's public information. Um, and we were sort of like, no, that's that's you know probably a bigger check than we want to write right now. So left it at that. Didn't really circle back on that, and then pop open. Uh, Twitter literally almost the instant that it happened because otherwise my phone would have lit up. And so I saw this and I'm like, wait, like, you know, like, what the hell just happened? Except unlike you, I'm like one of the owners and I'm like, that's kind of weird. And then I pull open ours and I was like, yeah, we just announced this. So I immediately called Andy. I'm like, did we just buy a Call of Duty franchise? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, we did. And so so I was not in the room. I found out about it exactly the same time as everybody wow. else. And that's how fast it came together. Uh, and frankly, it was just you know an opportunity where things, unfortunately, were not playing out the way maybe uh, certain people wanted over at Optic. And you know, bottom line is, you know, we the only reason that we went into Call of Duty, or a big part of it, was because we had this opportunity to bring in an amazing person to who has a huge amount of brand credibility, but also wants to operate it. Because to your point earlier, like we have nine teams under, and we want to continue to grow that, um, but it takes time. There's a learning curve. There's no question that I mean. Andy and I, uh, and you know, especially Andy, who is you know running things on the day to day. Andy is is in it. Andy, Andy is is is, is, is doing it, and he is very very operational. I, I think a lot of times with these yeah. orgs, you see figurehead Correct. owners. No, Andy is a hundred percent in it. That wasn't always the plan. The plan was sort of, uh, I would say that Andy was spearheading our investor group and kind of like doing most of the heavy lifting for us. And we were going to put in a really good management team. And then he was going to move on like the rest of us to do other things because we're not hardcore gamers. And I think play more of a figurehead role of like, yeah, it's cool to be an owner of a pro esports team or a pro sports team because you get great seats and you can go do cool events, but you're not in the day to day. No, Andy uh, is absolutely has gotten sucked into this and he is absolutely in the day to day. I still play way more games than him. Um, but that's probably because he's busy working. Um, 
But but yeah, and so anyhow, with Call of Duty, I mean, twenty five million dollars, big check to write. Um, yet, un- and, and when you write that big a check, it's not like sort of signing, um, you know, a, a, like not not to denigrate uh, like streamers, but like it's one thing to sign like a cool streamer to our brand um, and have them kind of do what they do, and we do what we do in terms of finding sponsors and managing that. Bringing in a twenty five million dollar franchise is like whoa, it's like Overwatch. I mean, we've got to really commit energy and resources to this, and so. Um, we no, would not no have pun done intended. That. Ener- yeah, energy. It, yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> but having hex, I mean, just made it become you know a, a much much juicier opportunity for us to have like the guy be able to run. Literally the yeah. the guy. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll be interested to know what you think about this. I I had a conversation with an ex Activision Blizzard executive, and mm-hmm. he was, uh, and this was in the. This was right after 100 Thieves announced that they were not going to be getting in Call of Duty. Right. Uh, which, by the way, 100 Thieves is their their CEO is Nadeshot, who also hails from the optic uh, tree, if you will. Knows it is very good friends with Hex. They decided not to get into Call of Duty. Uh, too much money. They didn't want to have to worry about separating their brands. That was their a big part of their reasoning. However, when I spoke to this ATVI uh, ex-executive, his whole take on the deal was that these franchises, to some degree, kind of weed out anyone who's not super serious about the business side, and also pointed out that these brands, Optic, Phase, uh, any of the any of the brands that built their brand on the content around these games, yeah. we're able to use that IP for free right. uh, for forever. And so yeah. this franchise fee is kind of monetizing that saying, hey, if you're going to be using our IP right. to build your brand and sell sponsors and makes yeah. money, then you got to pay for it. Right. And that fee is $25 million. And you can argue right. that's too much, too little, whatever. Right. Uh, is that, is that, is that, the way you see what they're doing? And if so, doesn't it seem like then in order to protect you guys as the franchise owners, they need to start doing copyright strikes on people that are uploading Call of Duty content to YouTube and like doing all these things? Like Because if you just paid for rights right. to, to do this and promote it and, and use the name, use the Call of Duty logo, yeah. uh, it seems like they need to protect that. Is that... Yeah, I think it's tricky. So I, 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 it's an interesting perspective. I don't think that's how we think about it internally, right? I mean, we think about it much more in the NFL and be a mindset of like, not that we got the right to play basketball or the right to play Overwatch or Call of Duty or even the right to show it, but more that there is sort of uh, uh, there is uh, an asset here that you can kind of build value off of and that there is more of a um, like we were saying earlier about like the Formula One example this is sort of more a mutual commitment between the publisher and the team owners that hey there is now real money in it for the publishers and they're making a real commitment to the team owners um, to this league Um that's how I view it now. Uh, that said, like, yeah, I think there is an element of what you described um, there. It's not something, like I said, that we think about. It may be something that Activision has thought more about. But to my earliest point about like how I came to this, how Andy discovered this, you don't want to kill off this whole incredible ecosystem. Um, 
because that's really still what drives and makes esports is this whole ecosystem. So I don't think you I think you want people just like every other brand and everybody else in social media um, or, or, or all other brands that are using social media um, to grow their brands and and, um, and, and uh, popularity. I don't think you want to kill that off at all. In fact, I think you want to fan the flames. But there is a fine line, right? So like one example is like the Super Bowl, right? So, uh, you know, if you're a bar, um, uh, you can't on Super Bowl Sunday, like if you show the games and charge for it, like you have to um, pay the NFL for that, right? So yep. they have people going out across the country. You will get fined by the NFL if you go to Vegas to watch the Super Bowl. Like and there I, are no Super Bowl parties. I think those fees. I think it's like two thousand dollars for yeah. a bar. If you're like a commercial yes. establishment, it's like a couple thousand bucks. Correct. I mean, it's not an insignificant amount of money to to do that. Right. So um, now, and that's for the Super Bowl. I think for the regular games, they're. I don't think they're paying anything to show those games, but they I th- may. I think they, they, they. Oh, they do. They pay. It's a. Uh, you you pay not specifically for that, but you have to pay a commercial right. cable fee, yeah. and then they they of course get a piece of that. Right, right. Um, and so and and so if you want to promote like a Super Bowl party though that you're charging for like in Vegas, because one year we all went to Vegas to watch a Super Bowl, we assumed that there would be Super Bowl parties. Well, there used to be, but not anymore. Now, if a bar wants to charge for a Super Bowl party, they have to pay the NFL to do that. Um, so I think it makes a lot of sense, but. You know, it's a fine line. You don't want to kill what's made esports uh, huge and what I think will continue to drive it, which is social media and virality. In Call of Duty specifically, and I, I guess really Overwatch and for that matter, any franchise league, do you think there's will be, it currently is and continue to be room for brands that don't own a franchise spot to exist in that ecosystem? So, for example, the Call of Duty League, I think, is still going to have amateur like events, yeah. right? So, do you still think there's going to be room for that or do you think it's just going to be so thin margin and difficult to be marketed? That, that you're not going to see brands exist in Call of Duty, as specifically esports org brands existing below the franchise level? I, I think you will, but I think it will be, like, to your point, I mean, I, I think as it is, as an evolving business, there are more and more dollars coming in primarily through like sponsorship and 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 um, and, and, and uh, you know distribution rights um, those are all gonna go to the pro teams right in the pro leagues so I think there will be opportunities but it will be like more people going after smaller dollars for right. sure yeah but I think that'll that, that'll still exist I mean um, and I, and I think that's sort of a fun but more of a hobby hobbyist place to play than like a real team but who knows maybe somebody I mean there are lots of really cool um, uh, influencers that create content like funny content around the games and stuff like Sniping. that. sniping yeah, that have nothing to do with the pro league at all, um, um, and uh, I think those guys will continue to do to do well. But I don't know that you could. Maybe if you aggregated them, you could build like a, a business off of that. But otherwise, I think it's more like individuals that will make money as influencers. Right. So the last thing that I want to get to is San Francisco Shock. Yeah. World champions. Yes. That brings a lot of hype. It's obvious that okay, yeah. now now you've got a championship 
franchise uh, a franchise spot that now has a championship to its name that's something that that goes down in the books you get to tout that and for, we crushed it right like we did not lose you a map smacked i mean i don't i don't know much about overwatch but yeah. i saw 4-0 and like just just dominated yeah i mean we we were the first team to be undefeated where we didn't even lose a map for a season in the last split and then this in the playoff run we lost one map at the beginning to atlanta and then we have been completely not only undefeated but we didn't lose a single map that's insane yeah so you get this feather in your cap this eternal feather in your cap right like it's it's that that alone is is so powerful however specifically what does this change uh like immediately so uh, Mm -hmm. you kind of going geared more on the business side of it so there's prize money. Yeah, I assume the org gets some of that, but not all of it. A lot yeah. of it goes to the players. There's some split there, so so there's yeah. some benefit there, yeah. uh, and that's that's probably the easiest one to quantify. Yeah, it was like 1.1 million bucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, uh, so nice little bonus for the players. Probably a nice little spike for the org. Uh, however, for the brand itself and and that side of it. Do you all of a sudden have sponsors beating down your door now that want to be with you guys because because yeah. of this? Like, how, how does this change the next twelve months yeah. specifically for the San Francisco Shock, and then I guess also for for NRG, but really more for the yeah. Shock brand? I mean, I think it's it's um, and and Andy, who's closer to it on the day to day, would be fielding those calls. Uh, might say otherwise. I definitely saw an increase in the amount of inbound interest that I had from people just on LinkedIn. Like you and I were saying earlier, like if you're in this space at all, you get hit up every day on social media by people of all all uh, all walks of life trying to get into esports. Um, so that definitely increased. I think uh, in my own little circle and bubble, when it was sort of amazing, because when I started down this path a few years ago. Everyone, all of my friends, family, um, colleagues, or whatever, was like esports. What, what what is that? And I can't believe you just wrote a pretty good sized check for that. And like e gaming. Yeah. What 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 does that even mean? People don't play video games. Electronic games. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this was like, um, wow, like. That's amazing, dude. Like, it makes me look smarter than I am. Like, wow, you knew this was going to happen. And, 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 and it's so different from uh, two years ago when we just lost the League of Legends franchise. And it was more like, wow, you guys are really dumb. You had no so, idea so what you were doing. So it was two years. So you yeah. went from the bottom to the top exactly. in about two years. Yeah. It looked like we went from totally clueless, had no idea what we were doing, which, by the way, was more or less accurate to winning it all. Like, wow, you guys have this whole thing figured out. Which we don't, but we got smarter and better, um, and, and and that shows. But obviously, uh, the coach and the players deserve. You know, we I guess we're smart enough to bring in you know good coach and players, but those guys and and give them uh, an environment to succeed in. Um, but those guys are the ones who you know who 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 really get the credit for winning it. Um, I would say two things. So. It is definitely a help for us. I don't know that brands are immediately crushing, knocking down our door to give us more money, but it definitely makes all of that stuff easier mm-hmm. for us. It makes uh, it easier um, for us uh, to potentially, you know, expand the organization and bring in more investors because now it's like, oh, you guys do know what you're doing. You're getting recognition for that. So all of that stuff's good. Sells more merch, makes it easier for us to. Uh, Hire and acquire better people and more better talent and players. 
all of that stuff is good stuff. But where I'm going is, I think the biggest thing for us and for all the owners is that the rising tide lifts all boats. So the so it is very cool to be the winner um, and to have all the, the good stuff that comes with Everyone that. Everyone loves winners. Correct. Winning never yes, hurts. That's right. <laughs> um, so it's helped in all of those ways. But the most amazing thing to me is, is when I was watching the League of Legends uh, team uh, get uh, relegated, it was me and two friends on the TV and we were streaming it off of Twitch on my TV. And that was it. Uh, when I watched us win, I was at a bar in downtown Austin that's an eSports bar showing it on, you know, 20 TVs uh, there with, you know, maybe a hundred or so uh, fans that came out to watch it. Um, and we were not streaming it. We were watching it on ABC. And Zed, one of the biggest DJs on the planet was the opening, you know, opening act and halftime, you know, you know, halftime act, if you if you will want to use the Super Bowl analogy. Yeah. And so it was like, okay, this went from sitting on my couch watching it, uh, streaming it off of Twitch, um, to watching this on ABC on Sunday up against the NFL Sunday games. Uh, with one of the biggest, you know, uh, DJs in the world, um, emceeing this, like that was amazing, and it was in a sold-out arena in Philadelphia. So, like, that's how far esports has come in 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 two years, um, and 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 I truly believe, I have believed this from the beginning. Um, which is why I put my money and blood, sweat, and tears into it. But I continue to believe it, even though I'm clearly biased. But um, I'm biased too, so I, yeah. I love it. Gas me up, baby. Let's I, go. I, I think you know over the course of the next ten years. I mean, it's going to be on the same footing and talked about in the same breath as football, baseball, basketball. I mean, it it is going to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. The number of people playing games, like we we're saying earlier, across all demographics. This is not just guys playing. This is girls playing. This is um, I'm 48 years old. I stay up at night and play. I'm shameless. I mean, I stay up at night and play with my friends online. Yeah. And we'll play till midnight, one, two in the morning. One of the faster growing demographics is a 50 plus demographic for gaming and streaming on Twitch. So gaming is, I mean, playing games is part of being human. Yep. And so um, whether and, and so when you combine that fact with being online and digital is also pervasive. Like, yeah, playing football, basketball, baseball is is, is certainly a game, something that you're going to do less of when you're 50, 60, 70 years old. But playing these other games, you can play them forever in the comfort of your own home. So I think gaming is just going to continue to blow up, and 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 we are just in the first innings of this thing, for sure. And it sounds like a great pitch, but I I totally believe that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talking about it and then actually being in it and putting your money where your mouth is and living and breathing it is is the best way to evangelize it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it will still be like any business. Um, It's still not like you know that doesn't mean that you should invest in every esports opportunity that you see and throw all of your life savings into it. I think esports as a category is going to work. Um, I did that, so I hope I'm, I'm okay. okay. Yeah, well, you're, you're a smart guy, and you're an all-in kind of guy. But um, but uh, um, figuring out which games, which business models, what to bet on. I mean, that's still that's still like all of these things. I mean, takes hard work and 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 um, and and uh, and also some luck in terms of getting those things right. But as far as like esports in general, making it. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's hundred percent. I mean, there's. 
it is the product market fit is doing nothing but growing. I mean, you look at, you know, you you go from StarCraft back in the day, which was kind of popular in each game, to you look at um, Fortnite now. I mean, this is main as mainstream as it gets. I, I you know, I don't know. I'm I'm just shooting from the cuff, but I'm guessing that there are as many 13 and 14 year olds, if not more, that play Fortnite than that play you know any one organized sport. That's right. I think yeah. that's accurate. Yeah. So you have more kids growing up playing Fortnite than playing football, basketball, baseball, or any of these other things. Man, so I could I could sit here and get into the weeds about how to manage teams and and the competitive stuff and and how this all this stuff makes money, all these things. However, I know you're a busy guy, so maybe we'll save this for for episode two. Sure. Uh, you but find me, Justin. I really appreciate the time. This has been fantastic. Your your insight is it's truly valuable in the sense that there's only a handful of people that can talk about this stuff from your perspective. Yeah. So I know for sure people are going to get a kick out of this. Uh, so I really appreciate your time. Uh, it means the world. And thanks for coming. I'd like to give a shout out to the other Justin, who is actually our producer on this podcast uh, at Capital Factory in Austin. Uh, if you are interested in entrepreneurship, uh, business, and you're in Austin, Texas, you absolutely need to get involved with Capital Factory, capitalfactory.com. I'm here. Justin Siegel's here. So it's a great place to be. We're actually in their studio. I said that at the beginning, but I'll say it again. It's been amazing. We appreciate it. And we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This was great.